Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy continues his study in Revelation. It seems today that everybody and his uncle has an opinion on how the church ought to conduct itself in a changing culture. Whatever the merit of those opinions, the thing that struck me this week as I've come back to Revelation 1 to 3 is that there really is only one opinion that counts when it comes to the church, and that opinion is Christ's. No one cares more about the health of your church than the founder, Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, we often try to find solutions to our church-related problems outside of His Word. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy continues his study on the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. We'll find that when it comes to the church, the only person whose opinion really counts is Jesus Christ. You can share today's program with a friend by going to ktt.org. Now, here's Pastor Philip with the only opinion that counts. I want to begin a two-part sermon entitled, The Only Opinion That Counts. When it comes to thinking about the church, it's Christ's thoughts about the church that should reign supreme. And that's why we want to study these seven letters. Listen to what we read in Revelation 1.19. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. It seems today that everybody and his uncle has an opinion on how the church ought to conduct itself in a changing culture and in a society that's retreating from Judeo-Christian values. Certain high-power and high-profile pastors and pundits tell us that if the curtain isn't to come down on the Western church, then the church to survive will need to do this, or the church will need to do that. If you read their literature, if you go to their conferences again and again, we're told it's imperative that the church change. The church must change its message. The church must change its music. The church must change its methods. The church must reconfigure its meetings. We're told that people aren't listening to us, and therefore, we had better listen to them and tailor our services to their tastes. The constant cry from certain ministers and certain marketeers is that the church must emerge into something other than it is right now. I can tell you, as a pastor who gets sent magazines, invited to conferences, who reads books, that the church is awash with opinions about what is wrong about the church and how to put it right. Now, whatever the merit or whatever the demerit of those opinions, the thing that struck me this week as I've come back to Revelation 1 to 3, if we really stop to think about it, is that there really is only one opinion that counts. 
when it comes to the church and its future health and holiness. And that opinion is Christ's. The body ought to do what the head tells it. The head of the church is Christ, not the Pope of Rome, not the Archbishop of Canterbury. The head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ, risen and reigning, and his input must inform our output. He tells us about the church in the Gospels. We're given a description of the primitive church in the book of Acts. Christ speaks through his apostles in the epistles. What we need to know about the church, Jesus has supplied. And I would argue this, that no passage in the New Testament, however, contains more clear, more concise, and more comprehensive instruction on the church's life and its ministry and work in the world than the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation. And so, I want us to listen to Christ's opinion. I like the story of Babe Pinelli, the famed professional baseball umpire who once called Babe Ruth out on strikes in one of his games. Babe began to argue, get into the face of Babe Pinelli, and he said, you know what? There's 40,000 people here who know that that last one was a ball, tomato head. Pinelli looked at him and in a calm voice simply replied, maybe so, but mine is the only opinion that counts out here. <laughs> you know, when it comes to the church, we can listen to pastors and pundits and ministers and marketeers, but when it's all said and done, it comes down to one opinion. And that's the opinion that counts the risen Christ who speaks to the churches here. In Revelation 1 to 3, listen to these words by John Stott, whose book, What Jesus Thinks of the Church, I commend to you. It's a study in Revelation 1 through 3. Here's what he says. What Christ thinks of the church is a question which no professing Christian can afford to ignore. What Christians think of it from the inside and what unbelievers think of it from the outside may be important, but far more significant is the opinion of Jesus Christ himself the church's founder and Lord. So let's then come back into this last book in the Bible that furnishes us the last word on the church. This is a message from heaven, from the ascended Lord, the head of the church, the founder of the body of Christ. Now, I want us to see the sender of these letters, and then I want us to see the setting of these letters. What about the sender? What, what do you see when you read these seven letters? You see that they are postmarked heaven. While they are dictated to and delivered by John, they are, in a greater sense, authored and posted by Christ. Look at verse 11. Jesus says to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We see this repeated in the verses we read just a moment ago. Verse 19, write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The things that John saw, chapter 1, the risen Christ in a glorified state. The things which are is the present church age as the churches of Asia are addressed in chapters 2 and 3. And the things which shall take place after are the future events of chapters 4 through 22. 
Christ speaks prophetically through John. Much like God addressed Israel through the prophets of the Old Testament. It's interesting, if you go to the beginning of every letter, you'll read these words. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. These things says he. You see that again in verse 8. These things says the first and the last. You see it in verse 12 of chapter 2. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Every letter is addressed to a church by the Lord himself. And that phrase, these things says he, reminds me of the Old Testament refrain, what? Thus says the Lord. John may be a postman, but he's also a prophet. He's a mouthpiece for the risen, reigning Lord Jesus who wants to address his churches, his church. So let's look at the sender of these letters. And as we look at him, as we look at this correspondence, I want you to see two aspects of Christ's relationship to the churches he's addressing. Number one, I want us to see his centrality. And number two, I want us to see his control. His centrality among the church, his control over the church. These verses bring us to see Christ residing and Christ presiding. Look at verse uh, 12 and 13 of chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And we know from verse 20 that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst, verse 13 of chapter 1, in the midst of the seven lampstands, churches, one like the Son of Man. Here's Christ sending letters to his churches, to the churches of Asia, and I want you to see his centrality. He's in the midst. Christ is and must forever be at the heart of all the affairs and advances of the church. In the middle. That's where he is. Not on the edges of first century Christianity. One commentator put it like this, in the middle. The glorified Son of Man in the middle, not above looking down, not outside looking in, but in the middle. At the heart of the church's affairs and advances. Christ may be risen. Christ may have ascended, but he is not absent. He is present. He is not passive or distant. He is active and imminent. In fact, we won't take time. Maybe next week with a little bit more time, you'll see that every letter begins with a front piece on the risen Christ. He is introduced to every letter, and there's a throwback to that portrait of him in chapter 1. Some aspect particularly relevant to that local church is, is drawn from chapter 1 and readdressed in chapter 2. Christ is front and center of the church's life in Asia. Wall-to-wall coverage. And that shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because this book is all about the Lord Jesus. It's not about the Antichrist. It's about Christ. We're told in chapter 1, this is a revelation, a, an unveiling of, of the Lord Jesus. We find him directing, disciplining, defending his church. Now, I think there's a point here, an application that you and I need to make. And we need to be reminded that in all things, Christ must have the first place. Has he got the first place in your marriage, 
your business, your relationships, your leisure, your speech, your thinking, your viewing habits, your entertainment choices. Has Christ got the first place? Because we find him in the middle. He is not an adjunct savior. He is not an absentee Lord. Without him, the church fails miserably or it succeeds even more miserably. Christ must be front and center. Let me point you in the direction of something you want to think about. Isn't that where God was among Israel? The old covenant people of God? Where do we find the tabernacle? If you read in Exodus chapters 25 through 28, or Numbers chapter 2, God details and dictates through Moses that the tabernacle is to be center, and all the tribes are to be put on the four sides of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the focal point of the nation. God wasn't going to allow himself to be pushed to the periphery. And watch that you don't push him to the periphery. He's got to be in the middle, dead center. He's got to be the front piece of everything we do. It's the same in the events of the Mount of Transfiguration. You can read it for yourself, Matthew 17, 18. It begins with um, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. When it's all said and done, we read Jesus only. And Peter made the mistake of um, wanting to build three tabernacles. And by inference, he was placing Moses and Elijah alongside Jesus. And the father was having none of it. And all of a sudden, woof, Moses and Elijah are gone. And only Jesus remains. This is my son, hear ye him. Because you see, Jesus has no peers. He's greater than the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the incomparable Christ. Remember, you remember what the guy said in Luke 9 to Jesus? Suffer me first. Let me go back and bury, you know, the dead or say goodbye to whoever I need to say goodbye to. Suffer me first is the way the old King James puts it. And yet in Matthew 6, what does Jesus say? Seek me first. It can't be suffer me first. It must be seek me first. Christ must occupy that supreme place. Go with me to 1 Samuel 5 verse 11, and let me remind you and then illustrate something, that it is a dangerous thing not to give God his rightful place. In uh, 1 Samuel 5 verse 11, you, you find that uh, Israel has been defeated. The Philistines have taken the Ark of the Covenant, that place uh, where, where God would meet his people. And uh, there they, they, they take it. They're going to use it as some kind of, you know, religious talisman, some kind of religious rabbit's foot. It's going to bring some kind of power to them, some supernatural benefit. But it all backfires, and God visits the camp of the Philistines with, with sores and cancers and just some ugly things. Look at verse 11. Here's what the leaders of the Philistines say. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel, listen to these words, and let it go back to its own place. It's a dangerous thing when God gets displaced. 
It's a dangerous thing when Jesus isn't given his rightful position in the church, in our homes, in our marriages. It'll cost you something when you rob God of his glory. Let's be warned. As Jesus writes these letters, and we'll look at each one of them soon enough, do you see his centrality in the midst? You know that I was back in Ireland this summer with Pastor Fabares from Compass Bible Church in Elisa Viejo, and uh, on a day off, we were taking around Stormont, which is the Parliament buildings in Northern Ireland. It's a beautiful, beautiful building. And uh, while we were inside, the girl who was showing us around pointed out a picture Beautiful oil painting of uh, Stormont and the Senate being opened at Belfast City so many years ago by George V and Queen Mary. The picture was painted, she told us, by a man by the name of William Connor. He was commissioned to paint this picture for the sum of 200 pounds. But what was interesting about the story was he was only paid 131 pounds. And we asked why, and she said, well, there's a number of theories. One of the theories is that he painted the hats too big on some of the wives, and their husbands were offended. Or at least when they got home, the wife was offended, and they made a big stink about it. You can't see me. I'm lost behind this sombrero, you know? Number two, he painted the backs of the heads of too many important people. Number three, Queen Mary looks bigger than King George. <laughs> now, the reality is, this is true. The reality is, she was bigger. She was taller. He was smaller. But you know what? If you're painting a picture of the king, you paint him bigger. And you paint her smaller. That was the etiquette of the day. And most people opt for option three. He lost some money because he, he, he took the glory away from the king. And may we never be found guilty of that. Here's the second thing. You want you to see his control? This speaks of Christ presiding over the churches, not just residing among them. Christ not only walks amidst the seven lampstands. What do we read in verse 20? He holds... In his hand, the seven stars. We read in chapter 2 and verse 1, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are seven angels or seven messengers, and they're held by Christ. Now, we've got a little bit of exegetical homework to do here. The first order of business is to determine the identity of those who are held by Christ. Are they spiritual beings, angels, real angels? Or, as it can also be translated, are they messengers, perhaps leaders in the church, pastors? And there's a debate on this, and good men have differed over it, and certainly it's not a doctrine to split a church over, but you've certainly got to wrestle with it in the text and its context. And I personally lean in the direction of understanding the term to speak of a church leader, a church pastor, who acts as a delegated representative of the church, a kind of envoy or someone that fulfills an ambassadorial role. 
That's how the word is used in Luke 9, 55, and in James 2, 25. And it could well be that these envoys or these ambassadors of a local church, they actually went to Patmos and received from John the book of the Revelation, and they took it back to the churches of Asia and read it. And that's why Christ addresses himself to the angel of the church of Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamos. Here's the reasons why I lean towards that. The word can be translated the human messenger or the messenger. Now, the challenge of that is this word is used consistently in the book of the Revelation for a spiritual being. But it also reminds us, be very careful of just basing your, your theology on the etymology of a word. You've got to not only see it in the context of a book, but in the context of other books. And nowhere, this is number two, nowhere in the Bible are angels ever given charge over the church. In Hebrews 13, 7, who's accountable to the risen Christ for the welfare of a church? The elders. They must give an account for those under their charge. Scary business. Continue to pray for us. Come alongside us. Because if this is the messenger, the delegate of the church, they have a certain responsibility under Christ. And the preponderance of the commentators see it that way. But here's the point I want us to get. If you take it as seven leaders who are representatives of the church. By implication, Christ not only holds the leaders in his hands, but he has the churches in his hand. He's concerned about the welfare of his people. And to me, it presents a beautiful picture. Jesus is described here as holding in chapter 2 and verse 1, the seven stars, the seven messengers, by implication, the churches that they serve in his right hand. The right hand in Scripture speaks of God's power, His authority, His ability to deliver. You'll find it throughout the book of Psalms. How He upholds us with His right hand. How He delivered Israel with a strong and a mighty hand. And the beautiful picture that comes out of this is that Christ owns the church. Christ has redeemed it with His blood. Christ possesses it and holds it precious. He is its sovereign sustainer, and at no time does the church slip from his grip. And that's a beautiful thought. It's reassuring to know that we're in God's grip. Nothing slips from his hands, not even the church. You're listening to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy in a message titled, The Only Opinion That Counts. You can replay it online at ktt.org. The Bible is the ultimate source of wisdom and insight for our daily lives. In God's Word, we can find answers to questions on a wide range of spiritual and practical topics. And this month on Know the Truth, we're highlighting a helpful book that points to Scripture to inspire readers to shape our world for Jesus in practical and doable ways. It's titled, Authentic Influencer, The Barnabas Way of Shaping Lives for Jesus. You're invited to request a copy when you give a gift of any amount to Know the Truth. Call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. Now, here's Pastor Philip with a closing thought. I know the truth. We believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, full of life-changing power and applicable to every aspect of our lives. 
And that's why in addition to this radio broadcast, we offer our listeners numerous resources, such as books, study guides, and other resources. You can find them over on our website at ktt.org. And if you want a convenient way to listen on the go, you can download the useful KTT app directly from our site. You'll find a link on the homepage, as well as links to our social media channels, which make it easy for listeners and easily share the gospel message with others. Because when you share KTT, you share gospel truth. And that's what this ministry is all about. I hope the resources here at Know the Truth encourage you and your loved ones to grow closer to God, equip you to serve Him with excellence, and prepare you for a glorious future in heaven. Thank you, Philip. And you'll find links to these resources and more at ktt.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us again tomorrow when Philip DeCourcy continues his study in Revelation titled, You've Got Mail. That's Tuesday here on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free.